Our scripture this morning comes from Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What is my joy to be opening up the Word of God with you this morning? We are entering into the second week of Advent. And for many of you, you may not be familiar with what Advent is. Advent for the church is the time that we take to prepare our hearts and anticipate the coming of Christ. And you might ask, well, didn't Jesus already come to earth 2,000 years ago? Why do we still have to anticipate his coming and prepare our hearts for him now? And you're right. Jesus has already come. He has ushered in his kingdom and his salvation. Christ was born on this earth and lived and died that we might have salvation and peace. This is redemptive history and fact. But we still celebrate Advent. We are still people of longing and of expectation. This week, Carissa Ford, our small group, a New York Times article There's an op-ed written by Tish Warren on Advent. She says this about Advent. To practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache, our deep, wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. We dwell in a world still racked with conflict, violence, suffering, and darkness. Advent holds space for our grief. It reminds us all of us, in one way or another, not only of the wounded, the wounds that we receive in the world, but that we are also wielders of this evil, contributing our own moments of unkindness, impatience, and selfishness. Advent is a time for us of yearning for the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of our own hearts to be made new, to be restored by our King. It is a time to reflect and ponder that Jesus, our Savior, has come to us in his humility and to remember that he will come again in his power. We look back on his incarnation with hope, with a hope and wonder that God made flesh will one day, someday, dwell with us forever in his eternal kingdom of joy. That is why we enter into the season of preparation and not just the celebration of Christmas itself. See, this season is a season of faith. Faith in what God has done, faith in what God is currently doing here and now, and faith in what God will do in the future. I would say that most of us don't dwell enough on the story of Christmas. To us, Christmas is a given. We know all the stories. We know what happened in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. But through our passage this morning, I want to feel the doubt, the frustration, the unknown that accompanied that first advent. I want us to see the faith of Mary and Joseph in the midst of tenuous circumstances. 
I want us to find our faith again in God who always acts at the right time in the right places and according to his purposes. For those of you super Christians who are taking notes currently, we will look at Luke 2, 1 through 7 in three main points. Faith in God's timing, faith in God's placement, and faith in God's purposes in our lives. So first, we are called to faith in God's timing. Most mornings this year, my wife, Callie, has gotten up and been listening to the Bible, trying to listen to the Bible in a year as she gets ready for the day. And she started in Genesis and chronologically has worked her way through the law, the prophets, the histories, the poetic writings, and is now somewhere in the middle of the New Testament. She really is a, a superstar. Um, she didn't want me to say, say that, but she is a superstar. And some mornings, as she's been listening, I've been able to listen in, and I quickly noticed a theme throughout the Old Testament. In almost every narrative, in almost every story of the nation of Israel, in every story of individual lives, God calls his people to have patience, to wait upon him, to have faith and trust in his promises. Abraham, Moses, the Israelites in the wilderness, the conquerors of Canaan, the kings, the prophets, the exiles, anyone and everyone. He made promises to people and they were called to wait. Think about the life of Abraham for a minute. God appeared to Abraham when he was 75 years old in Genesis 12. God promised him a son and he promised that through this son a great nation and salvation would come. Abraham believed God and waited in eager anticipation for his wife to become pregnant with this child. And they waited and waited. I can only imagine their longing and their disappointments and frustrations each month as Sarah remained barren. After 15 years of waiting, God visited Abraham again and assured him that he would fulfill his promises to him. And it was another 10 years after that appearance that Sarah conceived and gave birth to their son Isaac. We read that narrative in the space of a few minutes, but they lived in that unfulfilled promise for 25 years. We read throughout the scripture these stories of faith and anticipation in one sitting, but these people lived in expectation for years, for their entire lives, for generations upon generations. In our call to worship this morning from Micah 5, Micah prophesied that a ruler would come from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. He would be the longed-for Messiah that had been the hope of God's people from ancient days. He would be the one to stand and shepherd God's flock in the strength of the Lord and usher in the shalom of God, the universal, universal flourishing and grace-filled peace and joy of God's kingdom. And those who believed in the Messiah's message here had a concrete nugget of hope to add to the promises of God. Here at last is the place where the king will appear. Surely he is coming soon. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited. That promise was fulfilled. We see that in our passage today. Jesus was born in Bethlehem according to the word of God. But over 700 years came and went between the prophecy of Micah and the coming of Christ. Over 700 years. The last prophet of Judah, Malachi, prophesied the coming of the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. He prophesied the coming of John the Baptist. 
And again, the people waited eagerly for this prophet to show up. And they waited for over 400 years. That was the last revelation of God to his people before the coming of John. They waited in silence without a prophet, without hearing from God for over 400 years. And we have to think what amazing faith was demonstrated by those lost and forgotten generations who passed the promises of God to their children and their grandchildren. Those faithful who had been promised in these prophecies of fulfillment and who died never seeing those prophecies fulfilled. Faith calls us to wait, to have patience, to trust not in our own timing, but in the perfect timing of God. So it is into hundreds of years of seeming inactivity and silence that God enters at just the right time. In Galatians 4 we read, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. In the fullness of time, at just the right time, when all the pieces were set in place, God acted to fulfill his promises. The angel appeared to Mary and announced, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary had faith in the promises of God. She recognized that the hopes and fears of all the years were finally being met and fulfilled in this child. The time was here. God was on the move. And you may think in the story of Mary and Joseph that from this proclamation on, their life would be smooth sailing, that things would just go according to plan. But no. When Mary was in her third trimester, their town of Nazareth received word from the Roman government that they were required to return to their ancient homelands, their historic hometowns, to register in an empire-wide census. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. If I were Mary and Joseph, especially Joseph, I would have been like, really? Now, of all times? My betrothed is about to give birth. I have so much work to do in my shop. I've been preparing the perfect place for my family, the perfect home. Is there a mail-in option for this census? Can I just send it in? Getting married, if you don't know, involves a lot of planning. Having a baby involves a lot of preparation. Getting your mind around giving birth to and raising the Son of God is probably pretty stressful. (laughs) And now they had to move on top of that. All their well-laid plans were interrupted by an emperor far away who just wanted to count his people so he could better control and tax them. If I were marrying Joseph... I would have been so frustrated and anxious. God, why now? Not why and not after the baby is born. Why now and not early in the pregnancy when travel would have been easier and more comfortable and we could have been back home in time for the baby to be born? I can only imagine their tears and stress as they packed up their meager belongings for the journey south to Bethlehem. When Callie was pregnant with our son Mark, Even when she was nine months pregnant, we used to go on walks around our neighborhood and to the local park, and those were fun walks. 
but I cannot imagine taking my wife on a 90-mile, week-long journey over rough terrain and camping in the wilderness during that time as she's about to give birth. That would have caused quite a bit of marital stress in our relationship, to say the least. And we are not told exactly how Mary and Joseph reacted, but given how they responded in faith to the many bombs that were previously dropped into their lives, I can imagine that they trusted and rested in God. I can imagine they huddled together before the journey and prayed, God, we don't understand why you you have called us to leave our home now or what you have planned for us in the coming months or even how these things make sense. But we trust you. We trust your timing and will and know that you will be with us. Lord, you have turned our lives upside down, but we know that your interruptions are always better than our short-sighted plans. Mary and Joseph had already proven to be people of faith. And people of faith learn to trust when their plans are changed and interrupted. So how do you respond when your plans are interrupted? How do you respond when, say, your car won't start in the morning? When your shopping trip is cut short by a screaming baby? When a family member or friend is in crisis and you have to drop everything to help them? How do you respond when your life falls off of the timeline that you had so carefully planned? When you have failed that class and have to take it again? When you long to be married but are still single? When you pray for a child but remain childless? When you are fired from your job and can't see a way forward? When death steals the time that you thought you had with your loved ones? Do you fall into anger, into depression, into fear, anxiety, into panic? Do we even think to bring our trials and our fears before God? I urge you to make it a habit of your heart to run to your Father in prayer, even in the tiny mundane interruptions of your life. Train yourself to have faith in the small things. So when the giant storms of life come and seek to overshadow you and take you, you have a solid foundation of trust in a God that cannot be shaken. We have to train ourselves to remember that God is at work in this world and in our hearts personally. I think all of us can think of times in our lives when God used an interruption to bring about greater blessing. I changed my major in the middle of my junior year. Probably not the best idea. I packed a four-year degree into five and a half years of college. I didn't know exactly what God was doing. I don't even know um, what I was doing at the time. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life even then. I often felt like life was spinning away out of my control, that none of my plans were going to be realized. But thinking back and, and looking at how God used that, if I hadn't stayed in college those extra years, if I hadn't been more involved in my church and campus ministry during that time, I wouldn't have later met Callie or even likely been standing here today. And God used my failings, my frustrated plans. He used my setbacks to lead and direct me into the many, many of the current blessings that I enjoy and I am most thankful for today. And through that, he led me into greater dependence upon himself. As the saying goes, hindsight is twenty twenty. We can often see things clearer in the rearview mirror of our lives than out of the windshields. It is often easier to see God and what he was up to in our lives with the perspective of time and distance and growth. Faith in God involves looking back 
onto his faithful promises to us, but it also involves looking forward and resting in his future promises of grace, even when we cannot see how he could possibly make good with our present circumstances and brokenness. Faith really does nullify the pressure of time. Faith in God's timing allows us to loosen the death grip that we all have on controlling people and situations. We all are, I would say, manipulators. By nature, we all try to manipulate things around us. And when we do that, we either end up making people slaves to our schedules and destroy relationships, or we drown under the pressure of trying to be control of all things. We fall into despair. Faith in God's timing takes the pressure off of ourselves to make everything right. It recognizes that God is the only one who can and does make things right. And we cannot rush him. We cannot manipulate him. We can't even delay him. His timing is perfect. And we must trust that he knows better than we do. And there is such freedom when we trust in God. In our instant society, when everything is at our fingertips and waiting for anything is viewed as intolerable, faith gives us endurance. The steadfast promises of God give us patience. They build character and allow us the space to long for our true hope. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not wanting us to perish, but desiring that we should reach repentance. Have faith, therefore, in God's timing in your life. Your story is not plan B in the will and purposes of God. One day we will look back and see that everything, and I do mean everything in our lives, was in the fullness of time. God has always acted at just the right time in your life. God is sovereign over our times, and he is also sovereign over our places. We are called to have faith in God's placement of us. In 2009, I was going to be uprooted for the first time in my life. I had spent uh, my entire life here in Colorado. I grew up here in the Springs and went to Colorado State. And at 24, I applied to be an intern with Reformed University Fellowship and knew I would be transferred somewhere out of state to a college campus. And that spring, my dad, my campus minister, and several, several of my friends arranged a dinner for me Um, a surprise dinner. I thought I was going to be showing up uh, with some roommates just for a normal evening. And it was a surprise gathering of a lot of these friends. And at that dinner, my campus minister revealed where I was to be placed. This was a placement dinner. It was very exciting. And I found out that this Colorado boy was going to be moving to the middle of Florida. I was trading the mountains in for the swamp. There was a lot of faith involved in that move. There was a lot of faith involved in packing my things and driving to Florida in the middle of the summer, especially. It's a place of a lot of sweat. It turns out that Florida in August is rather warm. (laughs) Most of us know that when we move to a new place, it does involve faith. Letting go of what we knew before, the familiar routines, the places, the relationships, and starting all over, it's not easy. But when God calls us to a new place, we can either go kicking and screaming and bitter about it, or we can go trusting in God and knowing that he will be there with us. That's the wonderful thing about God. He's omnipresent. 
There is not a place that we can go that God is not already there. There is no place that he leads us where he has not already been at work preparing it for us. Mary and Joseph trusted that God would be with them in Bethlehem just as he had been with them in Nazareth and they made the journey. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. We don't know how long Joseph and his ancestors had been in Galilee. We don't know if it had been a generation or two. It could have been hundreds of years. But we do know that he could trace his line back to the line of King David, who reigned a thousand years before he was born. David and his family were from Bethlehem, which is a small and significant village in the clan of Judah, just six miles south of Jerusalem. And even after David became king, his hometown remained just a small blip on the map. But God chose this place for his eternal son to be born into the world. God promised his people that another king in the lineage of David would come. And like David, he would be born in Bethlehem, But unlike David, this king would ascend a throne that would have no end, that would last for all time. He would reign over all places and peoples, tongues and nations. It was from this little town of Bethlehem that this savior would arise. One commentator writes, on the surface, political reasons determined where Jesus was born. But the ultimate cause is the God who controls history and who guaranteed that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem in accordance with Old Testament prophecy. I don't think that Mary and Joseph were meditating on Micah's prophecy as they journeyed south. I doubt they thought, you know what? This really does make perfect sense. Remember Micah's obscure prophecy from 700 years ago? The Christ must be born in Bethlehem, so to Bethlehem we must go. I don't think they were thinking that. But what I do know is that faith enables us to enter into wherever God calls us with engagement and hope. Faith doesn't allow us to sit passively where we are. It engages us. It gives life and purpose even in the sorriest places that we find ourselves. For the Christian, even waiting is an active thing. I found this quote from Henry Nouwen on active waiting, and I love it. Most of us consider waiting as something very passive, a hopeless state determined by events totally out of our hands. The bus is late. We cannot do anything about it, so we have to sit there and just wait. It is not difficult to understand the irritation people feel when somebody says, just wait. Words like that push us into passivity. But there is nothing of this passivity in scripture. Those who are waiting are waiting very actively. They know that what they are waiting for is growing from the ground on which they are standing. Right here is the secret for us about waiting. If we wait in the conviction that a seed has been planted and that something has already begun, it changes the way we wait. Active waiting implies being fully present to the moment with the conviction that something is happening where we are and that we want to be present to it. Really, it boils down to, if God is at work in this world, then where he has you right now is not arbitrary. So where has he placed you in your life? In this season of your life, where is God calling you out of passivity and into an active faith, into a passion for seeing the spread of his kingdom? 
And maybe it's as simple as not constantly looking forward to the next thing to make your life better, to fulfill you. Maybe God is calling you to simply rest and enjoy where he has placed you right now. Maybe where he has called you right now is insanely difficult. Maybe life is bearing down on you and the pressure is leaving you crushed and powerless. Run to him. Ask him to show you little daily mercies that point to his greater mercy and sin-crushing grace on the cross. He has you here for a reason. At this time and place, God has you right where he intends you to be. We must learn to trust in his purposes for our lives. Not just what he will do in the future, but what he is doing and calling us to here and now. By faith, we know that God's purposes are right and true. Trusting in God's purposes really does take faith. The reason why it takes faith is that we are limited. We are finite. We cannot see all things. We do not see the beginning from the end like God does. Nor can we understand his purposes from the cosmic scale to the microscopic. As we read in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Who would have believed that God's purposes involved incarnation? That the God of all glory, the God of power, would condescend to be born in a grimy, earthy, mundane manger. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. Mary and Joseph could never have imagined that the Son of God would choose to be born of them in an animal feeding trough. They would never have guessed that when they arrived in Bethlehem, there would be no place for them to rest in comfort, and so they would be forced into a cattle stall. That Mary would be forced to give birth to Jesus among the animal stalls. That's a crazy plan. Who would have thought that? Who would have planned that from the beginning? I think I was in, I think I was in fifth grade when my school put on a Christmas play called Angels Aware. And it's a play slash musical And in it, the archangel Michael calls a meeting of all the angels in heaven, and he's going to give them the lowdown on God's plan for sending Jesus to earth. And there's much speculation among the angels of how he's going to go, what it's going to be like, how he should go to earth. Should he reign and rule, and what will it look like, and what form he should take? One of the songs in the play is entitled, If It Were Up to Me. And this is the starting line. It says, If it were up to me... I think that he should go as some kind of great hero, someone everyone should know. He would be the greatest of all time, one and only of a kind, someone folks would stand in line to see if it were up to me. The other verses go into other ideas that the angels have. He should go to a mighty king, a great military leader, the richest of the rich, the most powerful, the most famous, crushing all others with his power and his ability. And throughout the play and towards the end, the angels are shocked to find out that God is going to earth as a baby. It shocked them, and it should shock us too. In our familiarity with Christmas, we have lost the wonder and awe 
And honestly, I think we've lost the scandalous nature of the incarnation. The incarnation is the greatest miracle in the history of the world. God himself has tabernacled among us. The eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, by whom the worlds were made and who upholds everything by the word of his power, became human. He was born as a baby in first century Palestine. The God who dwells in inapproachable light was made visible. The God who could not be touched was made a baby that had to be held. J.I. Packer writes, The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. The incarnation is awe-inspiring, and it, and it really does offer humanity our only true hope. Michael Spencer writes, Without the incarnation, Christianity isn't even a very good story. And most sadly, it means nothing. Be nice to one another is not a message that can give my life meaning. Assure me of love beyond brokenness and break open the dark doors of death with the key of hope. The eternal son of God was born as a man quietly in a stable in an obscure village in Judea so that everything that was broken in the fall could be made whole. All pain and tears, evil and even death itself could be destroyed in the perfect life and sacrificial death of God incarnate. This was a truth, a redemptive truth and a historical fact. But what does this mean for our lives today? How does this puncture our hearts now? The purpose of God in the incarnation means that we can have faith even in the darkest nights of our sorrow and despair. Mary giving birth to Jesus and wrapping him in swaddling clothes and placing him in a manger is not the end of Bethlehem's story in the Gospels. You see, Joseph and Mary stayed for some time in Bethlehem after Jesus was born. In Matthew 2, we read that the Magi visited Jesus in Bethlehem when he was a young toddler. And in that account, when the Magi left and did not report back to King Herod, the king became enraged. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Can you imagine this horror? This is pure evil. My son turned two this week, and I teared up several times this week thinking about those young boys who were stripped from the arms of their fathers and mothers and who were slaughtered at the whim of this wicked and senseless king. I cannot imagine the pain and sorrow of Bethlehem that day and in the years to come. And this is part of the story. How could could God let that happen? How could that horror be a part of of the Advent Christmas story. And I don't know. I don't know the reason why those boys died. We are not given all the whys on this side of glory. But I do know that we have reason to hope and trust in the God who knows, who cares and redeems his people for good out of the greatest 
of evils. See, the purpose of God in the incarnation means that we can have faith even in the darkest nights of sorrow and despair and in the face of the greatest evil because God himself has entered into the darkest places of this world. Incarnation means that God cares so much about the evil in this world and the evil in your and my hearts that he gave his only son to die so that we could live. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life by his blood. The blood of Jesus was created in the incarnation. He took on weak, killable flesh to be killed by his enemies. Only in this way could God be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. C.S. Lewis wrestled throughout his life with many of these whys. Why do these things happen? Why pain? Why evil? Why this way? He wrote later in his life, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face questions die away, what other answer would suffice? What other answer can we give to the problem of evil, to the pain in our own hearts, than the perfect purpose of God and Christ Jesus. Even when the kings of this earth slaughter and destroy, we can look to our true king who allowed himself to be slaughtered for the sake of his people. A king who was born in weakness, who lived in poverty and scorn and died on a tree. I love the words of Charles Spurgeon on the incarnation. He says, There is no God at all if Christ be not God. It is no news to tell me that a great prophet is born, There have been many great prophets before, but the world has never been redeemed from evil by the mere testimony to the truth, and it never will be. But tell me that God is born, that God himself has espoused our nature and taken it unto himself. Then the bells of my heart will ring with merry peals, for I know now that my God is here. Since God has come to me, I can go to him. Advent is a time of yearning and longing. It's a yearning and longing for the brokenness of this world and our hearts to be renewed and made new in our King. Our King has come, but not with riches and splendor, not with a sword and scepter, but with tiny hands and feet of a baby. A baby who grew into a man, his hands and feet quick to heal and spread the joy of his kingdom a perfect man whose hands and feet were nailed to a sinner's cross, a true man who died there and was buried, who is raised from the dead by God and is seated with the Father in power. The amazing truth of the incarnation is that for you and me, our king remains truly forever, both God and man. He still bears our scars on his hands and feet. So have faith, in our King. Have faith in his heart for you, which still beats with the blood of the incarnation. Let us pray. Father, Lord, I pray that you would give us faith. Give us faith to see and trust in you again in this season of waiting and longing. Give us the anticipation of seeing your joy afresh. Lord, we live in a broken world and we remain in broken bodies, 
and still, Lord, are subject to sin. Lord, we long for the day when we will see your face, when we will be cured of sin, that we will be able to reign with you in perfect righteousness and holiness forever. Lord, hasten that day. Lord, in the meantime, give us faith in your timing. Give us faith at where you have placed us. Give us faith that your purposes are for our good and your glory, even through the harsh pains and trials and mourning that we must go through. In your name I pray, amen. The Lord be with you. And also. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. This table is a table of faith and not a table of works. But it's not always easy for us to rest in Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.27 tells us, Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. When I was in high school, this verse used to haunt me. I thought, wow, when I come up to this, am I eating in a, in a worthy manner? And oftentimes I would say, no, Lord, I'm not eating in a worthy manner. I've done all these things to hurt you this week. I have disobeyed your commands. I have not rested in faith. Can I even take this meal? Or worse, sometimes I would think, you know what? I am worthy this week. I lived up. I, I was pretty good. I, I did a really good job this week. I deserve this meal. But that in itself is eating in an unworthy manner. This is a table of faith. It is not about our worthiness. It is about Christ's worthiness. In fact, I, I would say, unless you come to this table saying, I am not worthy at all. Lord, how could you let me to this table? And this table is not for you. If this table, if you come here thinking, I have earned this, I deserve this, this is my right this week, then this table is not for you. This table is for those who, are know, who know that they are broken, who know that they rest on the finished work of another and cannot do anything in their own power. So if that is your story, welcome to this meal. This meal is for the brokenhearted, for the despairing, for those who know their sin and their need for their Savior. Our Savior is so good to us. So let us now proclaim the mystery and hope of this meal as signed and sealed in the sacrament. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. As we come to this table, we come forward in the middle aisles and we will take of the matzah bread. This is, um, it's all gluten-free and it's a, a, a bread of preparation for this Advent season. We will all take of this and um, there's wine on the um, inner rings and juice on the outer rings. Drink according to your conscience. This table is a feast for us. It is a feast of God's poured out blood, his body that is broken for us. On the night of Jesus' greatest trial, in the night of his darkest despair, on the night when all things seemed to be going awry, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to those friends gathered around him. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink as often as you do in remembrance of me. And grace and peace, as we eat this bread and as we take of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We proclaim his incarnation, the realities that our God has come to earth and lived this tangible life in our place. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful for the grace and kindness that you have shown to us in Christ. We are thankful for this table in which we see and know and get a small taste and glimpse of what it is like for God to be incarnate, to take on flesh, to be made physical, to Lord, to live and die for us. Lord, I pray that you would bless us today, that we'd be renewed in this meal, that your spirit would be with us as we partake of these elements. God, I pray that you would send us out into the world with renewed hearts by your grace. In your name we pray, amen.